So without further ado, join me in welcoming our two speakers. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us at Seminole State College. This is great. Uh, I'm John Sexton. And I'm Andy Fringer. And usually when we talk like this, we are introducing our podcast. Which we're sort of doing. We we're are. recording this for the podcast. Right? That's right. Uh, usually we're also about 600 miles apart when we do this, so it's nice to see you in person. Yeah, it's good to see you too. <laughs> um, so we are here to talk about Thor today. No, you, can't just, you can't just drop that like it's no big deal. You gotta <laughs> give it a little, come on, give it something. We're here to talk about... Thor! There you go. See, it's Thor we're talking about. This is the only Norse god who has his own hammer. Mm. His own comic book. His own movie trilogy. And his own element on the periodic table of elements. Yes. And he also has his own day of the week. Right. Although that's not really. That's not so special. <laughs> All the cool gods get their own day of the week. That's right. uh, Odin has Wednesday. Tyr has Tuesday. Freya has Friday. Thor is special for other reasons. Uh, you're segueing here. You're moving us well, into Well, yeah, we've the got a lot to cover. End of the introduction. The small talk is nice. All right. But uh, we got to get to the god of thunder and blacksmiths That's and right. goat chariots. All right. Let's do that. Let's go ahead and do that. we got a lot to cover here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're here because of the release of the third movie in the Thor uh, series. Mm-hmm. It's called Thor Ragnarok. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the movies today, but we're also going to dig into the historical and mythological context for Thor as an entity. Right. Uh, ultimately, we're trying to address the problem of the many aspects of a god with a long history that mm-hmm. includes a prehistoric era, a massively popular medieval cult, uh, and then the modern action movie franchise, comic book, and sort of other forms of awareness. Yeah. What do all these representations contribute to the idea matrix surrounding Thor? Uh, so let's start by orienting ourselves around the film series for those who haven't seen them and talk about the comic books just a little bit to get started. Then we're going to head back to the earliest, earliest versions of Thor in Germanic history uh, before we examine the medieval legends that are surrounding Thor and then his rise as a central figure in Norse mythology. Ooh, way to tease it. I like that. It's mm-hmm. nice. Uh, so we're going to start with the comics. Uh, Thor is an invention of the Silver Age, which for Marvel Comics usually means the early 1960s. Uh, it's hard to imagine now, but according to Stan Lee... The idea of a comic book about a Norse god come to Earth came about in part because he thought of Thor as a relatively obscure mythological figure. He says, and I'm not even going to try to do Stanley's voice, I decided readers were already pretty familiar with the Greek and Roman gods. It might be fun to delve into old Norse legends. Besides, I pictured Norse gods looking like the Vikings of old, with flowing beards, horned helmets, and battle clubs. No. No. I mean, one of those, one of those is all right. But okay, Vikings, do they have battle clubs? Maybe, but they prefer hammers, Mm -hmm. axes, swords. Uh, do they wear horned helmets? No. No. Do they have flowing beards sometimes? Yes. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Right. And he's not obscure, but this was 55 years ago, so we'll give him a pass on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine thinking of, say, like, because he's claiming that, you know, people already know Roman stuff, but they don't know Norse. People really know, like, Agamemnon and Electra very well? I don't think so. More well-known than Thor? Definitely not. But that's Stanley's claim. Right. Um, there has been a much greater interest in Norse myths and stories in the last few decades. So right. maybe Stanley was just ahead of his time. Right, a visionary. Uh, but as long as we're on the subject, we should also say that Stanley may be misremembering his level of involvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Jack Kirby has claimed for at least 30 years that he introduced Thor to Marvel after working on a few Marvel-related projects for Marvel and DC previously. I created Thor at Marvel because I was forever enamored of legends, which is why I knew about Baldur, Heimdall, and Odin. I tried to update Thor, put him in a superhero costume, but he was still Thor. I knew the Thor legends very well, but I wanted to modernize them. 
And what I like about that is it sounds like he's at least more grounded in the mythology. He's, well, he's not, paying attention. He's not talking about horned helmets. It's a good sign. Although, Loki's helmet in Marvel is horned. Yeah. And Thor has that helmet with the fancy little wings on mm-hmm. them. But on the whole, I would say that Marvel pays a fair amount of attention to the general architecture of Norse mythology. Uh, the gods and goddesses are at least name-checked, if not actually the characters in the story matching mm-hmm. up with the mythology. Um, and there are references to Valhalla and Asgard and Yggdrasil, and that stuff's all over the narrative. So there's a, a nice attention. And even when I'm teaching uh, sagas and, and the mythology sometimes, I'll use some pictures from the comic books because they're actually pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they do a decent job with that kind of stuff. Um, and they also named the third movie Ragnarok, which at least seems like they're looking to the Eddas, to the literature for some inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kirby is acknowledging that this version of Thor, the one you see up on the left there, he is a superhero first and a god second. Yeah. Uh, Marvel's Thor is something of a hero trope grab bag. Uh, he has a vaguely Norse context, but he's also a cape-wearing superhero with a secret identity as mild-mannered Dr. Donald Blake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mild-mannered. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect disguise. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think vaguely Norse there is the important part. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, there's a lot of difference between the Thor of Germanic myth and the mighty Thor that you find in the Marvel Stories. There's a lot of difference between most modern ideas about Thor and the medieval tradition. Yes. Uh, so how far back do we want to start? I want to go back as far as we can possibly go. Here. Oh, dear. And an obvious place to start would be with the name mm. Thor. Thor is just one of many possible names by which this god of thunder is known. Mm-hmm. His name is attested in all of the Germanic cultures throughout early medieval Europe. In Anglo-Saxon England, for instance, he was known as Thunor. Among the Germanic tribes of Central Europe, he was known as Donar. Uh, among the Saxons in northern Germany, he was Thunar, and Thunar among the Frisians. That's cute. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Andy put together the PowerPoint, so there are a lot of surprises for me in here, too. Uh, now, if you're listening closely, you can probably hear in some of those names the origin of the word thunder mm-hmm. in names like Thunor and Thunar. That's right. And the old high Germanic Donar, which also means thunder... Must be familiar to all of you as well. Does anybody recognize where Donner comes into our culture? Donner? Donner? Yep. Yes, Donner. <laughs> Everyone's favorite reindeer, Donner. Wait, wait, whose favorite reindeer is Donner? Show of hands, Donner's your, your guy, right? It's nobody's favorite. I knew oh, it. Come See? on. You're just some piece. <laughs> I don't have actual data. Yeah, I, I wouldn't claim. think. You introduced the subject, though. All right. Well, I'm regretting that. Uh, let's go back to <laughs> what the names actually reveal, shall okay. we? What do um, the names reveal? So there's a couple things. The first thing is that all of these cognate names, so you see all of them and how they look the same and sound roughly the same, right? Well, that suggests that all of these cultures, if you, go, if you follow them backwards, all once shared a common language. Mm-hmm. And we call that language Proto-Germanic. And perhaps more interesting is the fact that the etymological history of those names can lead us back much further in time than where we are here. You want to do the Indo-European migrations, don't you? I do. I like the Indo-European migrations. Okay, I have to say, I didn't expect us to go quite this far back in history. Uh, but You're talking are. about several thousand years before the Viking Age, mm-hmm. uh, before there even was a Germanic branch on the Indo-European tree. Yes, which is kind of cool, right? Okay. To think that far back. <laughs> so it's a long way. Now, there's a lot of debate about when exactly these migrations took place and how they took place. But that's a subject that's way, way, way too complicated. You've got to go to a history of the English language class or some other kind of class. Which you should that. totally do. It would be a great thing to do. Um, but we're going to be generous and say that the period that we're talking about, where you see the PIE, the Proto-Indo-Europeans, and then the outward movement 
and the, the tribes or the linguistic uh, uh, developments that you see, that happens sometime between the period of, this is really broad, 6,000 to 1,000 BCE. That is extremely broad. That is 5,000 years broad. broad. But like you said, the deity who gives rise to the Thor character has a very lengthy origin story. He does. And it all starts with the story of an American medical student with a bad limp who's on vacation no. in Norway. <laughs> no, it doesn't. That's the Marvel origin story. Uh, okay. We'll get to that later. All right. No, I was just seeing if you're paying attention. Yeah, I was. Uh, we're talking about more than just the origin of Thor the god here. We're talking about the common origins of the mythological beliefs associated with the various cultures represented in that Indo-European family of languages. All of these cultures that you see represented by these little funny circles on this thing. Once the linguistic connection between these different cultures had been made, then philologists like Georges Dumézil began to look for similar cognates in the myths and the stories. He was particularly interested in the connection between Indian gods, Indian stories, Indian myths, and Western European myths. Dumezu, I didn't know what he looked like. That's what he looks like. Yeah. He's a handsome oh. fella. I always notice that like these established scholars, they never have pictures of them as young men. Mm-hmm. It's always when they're about this age. Gravitas. Yeah. They, That's right. They've established themselves. That's right. Dumezu's most famous for something called the trifunctional hypothesis. And that argues basically that the majority of Indo-European cultures were structured around three primary functions, which can be seen most clearly in their social hierarchy. These functions and their corresponding hierarchies, he argues, can likewise be seen in their religious beliefs and their religious practices. We should say this is, has generally been a somewhat controversial theory, although it is now largely accepted mm-hmm. by scholars. Uh, Demezel's first function is for the highest tier of society, the rulers, priests, and legal authorities. If you think about the pantheons of gods encountered in a world mythology course, you'll recall that nearly all of them have at their head some ruling authority. It's usually sky gods, uh, like Varuna in the Vedic tradition, Zeus for the Greeks, or Odin for the Germanic people. Uh, We should also include Tur in this category, Mm -hmm. uh, not only because he's the original sky god, but because he's also a god of law and justice. Right. And the second function, according to Dumezil, carries the trait of physical force in all of its manifestations, from energy to heroism to courage. Mm -hmm. These are the champions and the warriors who fight for the sovereigns and defend the people. And they don't often show the kind of wisdom one finds in the first function gods, but they more than make up for it in strength and bravery. Right. And once again, we can see the second tradition in the Vedic Indra, who killed the evil serpent Vritra, uh, the Greco-Roman Heracles, or the Norse Thor. Mm-hmm. And there's Thor, right? Yes. He's there. Look at him with his hammer. Mm-hmm. All right. So I knew we'd get to him. Here's our point, right? We had a point? Uh, We we should finish off trifunctionalism, though, before we get to that. Let's finish Uh, The third function, DeMaisel says, is generative. Uh, This is for the common people. Uh, So here we find the lower-tier gods who are in charge of fertility, prosperity, healing. Mm -hmm. Almost anything else doesn't fall into the first two categories. Right. These are producers. They produce food, they produce weapons, they produce goods, and when they get lucky, they even reproduce. Mm. It's quite nice. In many of the mythological narratives, you're going to find protagonists uh, of those narratives are typically from the first or the second tier. It's either a leader god or a warrior god. And then third tier characters play an important role in helping those uh, protagonists. Um, they're going to interact with the first tier or second tier people and offer them some kind of assistance to help them accomplish their mission or quest or whatever it is that maybe even trouble that they're getting right. up to. Um, again, in the Vedic tradition, we have the Ashvins, twins, Castor and Pollux, both uh, sets of twins. It's often they come in pairs. And we have Frey and Freya in the Norse tradition. Right. And all of this is important to the history of Thor because it helps to establish him, or at least his type, among the most ancient gods of the Indo-European religious tradition. 
This tradition reflects the historical realities of the Indo-Europeans, the structure of their society, their customs, their beliefs, their value systems. And Thor, like Heracles and Indra, represents a fundamental aspect of our sense of what it means to be human and how we make sense of the various roles that we play in society. What's particularly interesting here is that the stories of Thor, Indra, and Heracles share so many characteristics with each other. Right, exactly. Uh, Now, in addition to being the strongest and bravest of their respective pantheons, they're all monster fighters as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, another example of this kind of thing is Beowulf, right? Beowulf fits into this model very nicely and is also a monster fighter. If you haven't spent any time investigating the parallels in a world mythology class, I encourage you to spend some time in it at some point. It's fascinating reads. But rather than dwell on comparative mythology... Why don't we complicate this whole conversation just a little bit? Why complicate? I almost hate to ask, what do you want to complicate? Uh, well, we did just establish the trifunctional hypothesis, right? Yes. And that is supposed to identify Odin and Tur as the sovereign gods? Yes. Making them the chief gods of the earliest Germanic tribes? We did. Okay. We hinted that Freya is a third tier or a third function goddess, a goddess of fertility. Correct. I feel like you're leading me somewhere. Well, John, if all of that stuff is true then why does Thor emerge as the preferred and chief god of the Viking Age? Mm-hmm. If you look at all of his roles... He's so cool. <laughs> well, I think that's part of the answer. He is so cool. If you look at all of his roles, he seems to fit within more than one category. Mm-hmm. In addition to being a god of thunder, he also was widely revered for his role as a consecrator-in-chief. Consecrator-in-chief? Mm-hmm. Is that an official title? No, but I think you know what I mean. That I do. As far as the people of Midgard are concerned... He, um, you mean humans? Yes, people of Midgard. That's us. Humans. Yes. Yes. People of Midgard. As far as they're concerned, Thor is the go-to guy for blessing and hallowing everything from crops to buildings to weddings mm-hmm. so that you can have children. You need Thor right. to help you. Right. Right? With this kind of sacred and priestly role that he's given, doesn't he start crossing over into Dumezil's first function? I think he does. Yeah. Although we shouldn't confuse this function as intercessor uh, the interest for human beings mm-hmm. with the role of a sovereign or ruler. Okay. Right? Uh, he does fulfill a sort of holy function, but one could argue that it still falls under the umbrella of the second function, which has to do with that strength and energy and physical force. Mm. Right? It's probably appropriate to think of Thor's hallowing or blessing in terms similar to those of a warrior's oath to a lord, right? mm. the, uh, the vow to defend and to protect. Well, fair enough. But what then do you do with the fact that he is also worshipped as the fertility god? Thor isn't just God of Thunder. He also controls wind and rain. He doesn't just bless the crops. He creates the conditions within which those crops can grow. So now he's dipping into the third function. That one's a bit more problematic. I think so. Um, let's not forget the symbolic force of Thor's parentage, I think. Okay. Uh, he is the son of Odin, the representative of the sky or the heavens, mm-hmm. and Jorth, representative of the earth. That's right. Uh, and his own marriage to Sif in some ways parallels this. Mm-hmm. Thor takes on the role of the sky god, yep. and Sif, whose golden hair is thought to represent healthy fields of wheat, right. takes on the role of earth. So mm-hmm. their union is a union of sky and earth, which creates some kind of fertility. It's agriculture. It's growing. We should explain quickly, if you've only seen the movies, uh, Sif is the black-haired woman he fights along with and does not marry. Very um, bad wheat. Which <laughs> Very bad wheat. That's, that's but dark. normally, she's his wife and a blonde. That's right, yes. But this agricultural fertility stuff, it feels very much like third function. I think that's fair. Third function Uh, fertility. It also explains a story from the myths. Uh, One day, Sif and Thor wake up to discover that Loki has cut off Sif's hair as they slept. And Thor nearly kills Loki in revenge. Thor's fury is understandable as a reaction to a violation of his wife's person, but it's also a fertility god's natural reaction to the trickster god destroying a harvest of wheat. Destroying the harvest of wheat? I Mm -hmm. like it. How metaphorical. (laughs) 
And because Thor serves so many roles, especially for mankind, it's not surprising that he's mentioned more often than any other god in both runic inscriptions and in saga literature. Mm -hmm. And we see archaeological digs turning up things like this. Thor's hammer amulets all over the place, all throughout Scandinavia and northern Germany, uh, some in England. And we have devotional artifacts as well that pop up, like this cute little fella <laughs> who there's actually controversy about whether it may or may not be Thor, but most people have regarded that as a Thor figure with a hammer. But it could be a guy who's playing a flute, it turns out. Um, his name is also all over the landscape. If you go to Iceland, for example, what you'll find in Iceland is lots and lots of places, not just town names or farm names, but uh, topographical features of the landscape that are named after Thor. And in addition to that, if you go into the names of Iceland, uh, John, I know you and I read a lot of sagas, and one of the mm -hmm. complaints we get most often is that all the names start with Thor somehow. Yeah. Why um, do they all start with Thor? Something like a quarter of all the names in the Icelandic sagas have Thor compounds in the names. Yes. And here's a list of the approved names of Iceland that begin with Thor currently. Uh, and there are more than just that. Um, so Thor's a good example of trifunctionalism in mm -hmm. Norse religion. Yeah. Um, but why then does it feel like he is kind of crowding out those first tier gods? To be fair to Demazel, I don't think that Thor's evolving popularity among the common people in Scandinavia necessarily contradicts the trifunctionalist hypothesis. Okay. Uh, that doesn't, he doesn't ever supplant Odin as the ruler in Asgard. He's never the chief go god of the aristocracy in medieval Germanic society. Right? He always has this role as the sort of champion, never as the king. Mm, that's fair. Uh, in fact, I think we see some of that distinction, that, that distinction between Odin and Thor's respective positions maintained in the Poetic Edda. Mm -hmm. uh, remember when Odin and Thor are exchanging insults in Harbardsjoldi. Harbard mocks Thor. Yeah. And he says... Harbard is Greybeard. It's one of Odin's uh, pseudonyms he takes when he's walking the earth. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that Harbard says to Thor, mocking him, is that the noblemen who fall in battle have Odin, but Thor has only the race of thralls. Ouch. Yeah. Sickburn Harbard. Uh, mm -hmm. We see the same distinction made clear again in the story of Thor and Starkov in Gautrek's saga. At one point, Odin offers blessings to Starkov, uh, promising him the love of the nobility, and Thor responds that the commoners will still hate him. Interesting. So all of this illustrates nicely, I think, the important ways in which Odin and Thor differ. Mm. It's clear through the Eddas and the sagas that Thor has a very specific place in the hierarchy and a proper role to fill as defender of the gods and protector of the common people. Right. And this actually plays out in the second film, Thor The Dark World. Hmm. You mean the worst Marvel movie of all time? It, 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 oh, this oh is, is that blasphemy around here? I'm sorry, here? but um, go look it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It is the lowest rated of all the Marvel movies. It's not very good. Uh, and it probably is so for a reason. But uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't have anything right. good to but say. But this, this, we're going to redeem it just a little bit here. Uh, in the final conversation between father and son in that movie, Odin once again offers the throne of Asgard to Thor. He says, and I'm not going to do an Anthony Hopkins either. Oh, come on. You once said that there would never be a wiser king than me. You were wrong. Everyone saw you offer your life to save them. What can Asgard offer its new king in return? Father! <laughs> I cannot be king of Asgard. I will protect Asgard and all the realms with my last and every breath. But I cannot do so from that chair. Loki, for all his grave imbalance, understood rule as I know I never will. The brutality, the sacrifice, it changes you. I'd rather be a good man than a great king. That's your Chris Hemsworth? 
That's, thank no, you. No, thank no. you. Don't, don't encourage him. It's uh, exactly what we're talking about. Uh, I may not like the second film, but that is a brilliant summation of Thor's character. He doesn't want to make the moral compromises required of a ruler. That's right. And when we look into the surviving materials from the Middle Ages and before and after, I think that you can see that there isn't so much evidence of blurred lines or confused functions for Thor. Yeah. So Dumezil, yeah. Yeah. kind of no. right. Thor's connection to the common people and the mm -hmm. many roles he plays in their lives, it's the key to his enduring popularity leading up to the Viking Age. And the relative closeness of the warrior class to both the nobility above them and the people that they protect below them makes them accessible to both groups. And so right. it can speak to Thor's right. popularity. Now, okay, with that introduction to the historical and theoretical Thor, okay. that aside, we can now turn to the major literary source for Norse mythology and for the Thor legends, the poetic Edda, or the prose Edda, excuse me, of Snorri Sturluson. Ah, the infamous Snorri Sturluson. The infamous, thank you, yes. Uh, do you want to explain about Snorri? Sure. Uh, Snorri, how many of you have ever heard of Snorri Sturluson? <laughs> Big Snorri yeah. fans in the back. All there right. you go. Snorri Sturluson was an important member of the powerful Sturlunga clan in Iceland in the late 12th and early 13th centuries. He was a politician, he was a historian, a lawyer, a poet, a diplomat. Mm. He was deeply involved in international politics as well. Involved in politics. Yes, That's he was. That's a very nice way of putting it. How would you put it? He was assassinated in his basement by his own in-laws on orders from the King of Norway. That's not involved? That That's, sounds very like I said, involved. it's a nice way of putting it. Uh, so before he died... He was assassinated by his wife's nephew. Yes, before he was assassinated by his wife's nephew for being involved in politics. Uh, Snorri wrote several important works, including a history of the kings of Norway called the Heimskringla and the Prose Edda. His most important contribution to Norse mythology is the first part of this Prose Edda, called the Gulfaginning, or the Tricking of Gulfi. Now, the Gulfaginning is the story of a human king who travels far, far away to learn of the gods, and he eventually comes to a hall governed by three men, as you see here. They are Haur, Javanhaur, and Thridi. Their names translate to high, just as high, and third. And those three names, Haur, Javanhaur, and Thridi, are all more pseudonyms of Odin, the patriarch of the Norse gods. And you can see in the picture here, if you look closely, what do you yeah. notice about all three of those guys? The eye there, yeah, they're all missing, missing an eye. eye. Right. Good. Uh, so what we have here is one god who appears in three forms, a triune god, right? Okay, wait a it second. Sounds familiar yeah. somehow, triune isn't it? god? Yes. Three in one? Yeah, what? I, I know where you're going here. Yeah. <laughs> but I think everyone knows where I'm going here. We're supposed to be talking about Thor. Okay. This is not comparative religion. You started it. Well, okay. Let's okay. get back on the... All right. But I'll, I'll move on. Please. Uh, so they begin to tell goofy stories of the Norse gods in response to his questions. And over the course of a single night, they tell the entire story of Norse mythology from the creation of the world through to Ragnarok, the time of the apocalypse. That is a very long night. Can that is a very long night. <laughs> Start at the beginning. Uh, yes. How far back? All the all way. All the way. <laughs> We've got a long night ahead of us. Yeah. Uh, now, Snorri presents all this as a set of legends. Right? In fact, he's very careful to preface the entire thing with a massive disclaimer. The gods, you see, are not gods. They're really a family of refugees from the Trojan War. Odin is the leader of a group who set out from Turkey, and wherever they passed through, great glory was spoken of them, so that they seemed more like gods than men. Yes, and in fact, Snorri suggests that Thor is a corruption of the name Hector. Yes, he thinks that <sighs> Thor is Priam's son, Hector from the Iliad. Yeah. Uh, so what Snorri's up to here is called euhemerism. Uh, it's the recasting of mythology as a kind of misremembered history. 
He's almost certainly doing this to skirt the issue of whether it's appropriate for a 13th century Christian to be recording pagan myths. Yes, and it also creates a number of questions about what in his text is actually pagan, per se, mm-hmm. and what's being filtered through the influence of a late medieval Christian perspective. Most of it. <laughs> yeah. Several of the gods seem to be filtered through this Christian mindset. For example, Odin sacrifices himself on a tree to overcome death and achieve wisdom, which includes his side being pierced with a spear. Right. Now, oddly, Thor doesn't pick up too many overt Christian motifs. Instead, he seems shaded toward the demigod hero type. Mm. Like Heracles or Theseus or Gilgamesh, Thor is defined by his outsizedness, massive appetites, insurmountable will, a superhuman strength that makes him exceptional even among the other Asgardians, the gods of the Norse. Mm-hmm. He is fully a god, though. He's not a yeah, No, certainly he is. I'm talking about motifs. Mm-hmm. And more broadly, Snorri's gods are surprisingly human. Uh, but Thor in particular is... How would you describe him? Well, Thor is very strong. Yes. Thor is muscular, mm-hmm. which makes sense since he's associated with blacksmiths. Mm-hmm. He has a red beard, although not in this picture. He should have a red beard and a tendency towards grumpiness. Mm. And the Edda says this, Thor is the most outstanding of the gods. He is the strongest of all the gods and men. He has two goats called Tooth Grinder and Tooth Nasher, and they draw his chariot. And from this, he is known as Oku Thor, Driving Thor. The goats are unexpected. Uh, You don't picture a hammer-wielding giant killer riding behind a couple of goats. You do picture a grumpy man being driven by a bunch of grumpy goats, though. That's true. It's a good possibility. Uh, And these are special goats. Yeah. Thor can slaughter them and then eat them. And then the next morning he can bless the bones and boop, they're back. They're resurrected. That's useful. And then he can eat them that night, too. Right. I just imagine these goats, if they have memory of all this, just how awful their lives must be. (laughs) Oh, God, he looks hungry. Run faster. <laughs> now, he also has some special items, three special items that assist him in his role as champion of Asgard. Besides the goats. Besides the goats, yes. The first is his hammer Mjolnir. Mm-hmm. The second is his belt of might, which doubles his godly strength. Mm-hmm. And then the third is a pair of gloves that he has to wear in order to wield this crazy hammer. Right. So Thor is a formidable warrior in large part because of his tools mm-hmm. right, rather than because of his godly nature. Yeah. Uh, That's a theme that comes up repeatedly in the Edda. The gods are constrained in their ability to affect the world, while the world can affect its constraints upon them. Mm. Segway. Moving towards another. Yeah, it's it's, it's a segue. It works better if you don't call attention to it. I like calling attention. Yes, the gods are constrained. uh, And more than that, many of them are actually maimed or impaired in some way. Odin, as we suggested before, is missing an eye. Uh, Tyr is missing a hand. Loki has scarred and twisted lips. Uh, Sorry about this one. Storyline. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, Some kind of fan art going on here for Tom Hiddleston, uh, which presumably they didn't send to him. Uh, (laughs) Hod is blind, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Old Norse literature in general has this engagement with physical difference, and it's really not surprising. Uh, Congenital conditions, the vicissitudes of battle, uh, a harsh environment, these things left their marks on many people. And Norse writers found as many ways to present difference and to imbue it with meaning. What's surprising is that other literatures don't seem to engage with this ability as often or as well. And the depiction of Thor in the Edda is no exception. He suffers from what medical experts have termed a chunk of rock stuck in his head. Yes. Is that a medical term? Mm -mm. It's a chunk of whetstone, in fact. Yes, it is. Sure. And check this out, people. Woo! That's something, isn't it? There's something for you. This is uh, a picture of Thor's duel with a giant called Hrungnir. Mm-hmm. And in this 
duel, the massive giant Hrungnir has a club or a giant whetstone that he uses as his weapon. And they throw them at each other. So Thor, just like in the movies, throws his giant hammer and Hrungnir is going to throw the whetstone and the two come together. The hammer goes right through the whetstone and shatters it. It lands on the guy's head and kills him, of course, as Thor's hammer would, would do. But one of those shards of the whetstone finds itself in Thor's head and mm-hmm. it's stuck and he can't get it out. It's right. a real tragedy for him. And this gives him migraines, uh, which is very unfortunate, but there's also a link to Thor's role of God of Thunder here. It's kind of an origin story, perhaps, because when he puts his helmet on, the metal of the helmet strikes the whetstone and creates sparks. Right. Now, the implication seems to be that Thor's reputation for what we will call deliberate and uncomplicated thinking comes in part because of this chunk of stone stuck in his head. That's probably true, although he's actually a a far more complex figure than we often give him credit for. And that association with a whetstone is really a vestige of early versions of Thor's iconography, way, way, way back, where we think that uh, his, his weapon or he was associated with a grindstone and not a hammer. Right. Uh, now, it's interesting that Thor's stories in the Edda tend to come in sort of two flavors. Uh, in some, he's the comic relief or the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. And in the others, he's the ultimate badass. I don't think you're supposed to say ass in, in a lecture like this. I'm sorry, was that in? It's, I can say it. It's appropriate. He's one of the Asir, the gods of the Norse. Plural Asir, singular ass. Right. It's very clever. It's very clever. Okay. That deserves the groans that it got. <laughs> so... Sometimes I just do them for me. <laughs> now let's talk about these two ideas of Thor. I think this is relevant to talking about the films as well, since people who like or dislike the Ragnarok film agree that Thor is more, a more funny figure in mm-hmm. this movie than in the last one. But you're saying that serious Thor and comedy Thor are both true to the original myth. Sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's being comic relief, though, in the in the saga, in the uh, uh, Edda, Thor is usually getting frustrated with something. The comedy comes from his anger. Yes, and this classic case of Thor getting annoyed. Uh, it comes from the trip to the land of Utgard Loki mm-hmm. and the story of the Thrymskvida, the Lay of Thrym. Yeah. Uh, do you want to cover Thrymskvida first? I do. I was going to. kind of fun. Uh, the brief version of this story is that a giant named Thrym steals Thor's hammer Mjolnir while he sleeps. When Loki meets with Thrym to negotiate for the hammer's return, Thrym demands the goddess Freya's hand in marriage as the ransom price. The gods refuse in horror, of course. And Loki... Freya is very upset by this. Well, she should be, She doesn't want to marry that guy. understandably. So, Heimdall, the god played by Idris Elba in the films, suggests a trick. The other gods will dress Thor in a bridal gown and a veil. With Loki in disguise as his maidservant, the two will go and present Thor as Freya. Mm -hmm. The trick works, which is pretty hard to believe. Uh, But maybe the giants aren't great at telling male and female gods apart. No, I mean, look look at his big hairy arms and face over there on the right. There's no way that that guy's bright enough to figure out what's going on. So the rest of the gods really seem to relish this idea of Thor being forced to cross-dress in this situation. Mm-hmm. The picture on the left where he's standing there getting dressed, and he's just, he looks so straight and, and uncomfortable with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fun picture. Um, this all makes sense, though. The idea that the hammer is a phallic symbol, it's a source of strength and a phallic symbol, is pretty well established. Mm-hmm. So Thor, being feminized after losing the hammer, uh, has a pretty clear subtext, I think. In fact, the entire plan revolves around the use of Thor's hammer as a fertility symbol in weddings, like I was right, talking right. about. It'll be placed in between the bride's knees uh, to ensure future fertility. That's right. And what's more interesting to me, though, in this whole scenario is that while Thor, uh, Thor has to be disguised as a woman, Loki can transform into a woman and does so. Right, right. Now, that's something we know Loki can do. And there's actually an argument to be made, and people have made it, that Loki is truly hermaphroditic. 
Uh, in a different story, Loki becomes a mare, a female horse, and accidentally ends up pregnant with an eight-legged colt. Uh, and he carries that colt to term and then presents it to Odin as a new steed, slept near the eight-legged horse. Which is kind of funny, though. Like, well, yeah. If I was transformed into a horse and found that I was pregnant, right. would I stay in the horse shape until I gave birth, or would I just well, be like... Pro-horse life. I guess um, so. <laughs> but it's... Um, what's interesting to me, and it's something that's never really been resolved, is that when when Loki is female, he gives birth to heroes. He gives birth to things like the eight-legged horse of Odin. Mm -hmm. When he's a father, he gives birth to monsters. Yeah. That all of the children he fathers are horrific. Uh, they are Fenrir the wolf, Jormungand the world serpent, Hell, the goddess of hell, mm -hmm. and so forth. But when he's a mother, he gives birth to hero horses. It's uh, interesting. Um, anyway, the point here is that Loki keeps the attention on herself throughout the feast at Thrym's house. Meanwhile, Thor bides his time by eating an entire ox and drinking massive quantities of ale. <laughs> and Loki has to explain this away as Freya's sexual appetite manifesting itself as a general insatiability. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, this only makes the giant more excited. That, that, that this, is the, this is the bride he's getting. What a woman. Uh, eventually, the hammer is brought out, and once it's placed between Thor's knees to bless the marriage with children, he grabs it and bashes Thrym's brains out before Aww. slaughtering most of the wedding guests. He's... The quintessential temperamental bride. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, the, the story has fun with Thor's outrage over the whole situation, but it's also enjoying Loki's smooth effectiveness as the bridesmaid. Mm -hmm. right? They're a good comedy duo, and I think we see that in the new film. Yeah. Now, uh, the other story is Utgard Loki. It's a bit longer, but we're going to do it really, really briefly. Yeah, we should. But it's probably the, one of the most famous ones. Thor and Loki, along with Thor's servants, travel to the land of the giants, and this land is ruled by a guy named Utgard Loki. After mistaking the glove of a massive giant the night before for a mead hall, he arrives kind of in a grumpy mood at the lands of Utgard Loki. Mm -hmm. Everything that happens here only embarrasses and enrages him more. The whole thing is set up as an embarrassment to Thor. Mm -hmm. His servant Thjalfi loses a race to a giant named Hugi, and Loki loses an eating contest against a man named Logi. Finally, then, Thor is humiliated in three consecutive trials. First, he fails to drain a long drinking horn in, a, in three tries. And if you know anything about Thor, he's the best drinker in the whole world. And he just can't seem to finish that. He then tries to f and, and fails to lift a large cat. It's totally embarrassing. And then he's in a wrestling match with an old woman, and he's forced to one knee. Mm -hmm. uh, now, obviously, as an audience, we're in on the joke here. Right? By the time Thor is getting out-wrestled by Grandma it's pretty clear there's trickery afoot. But Thor's credulity is an essential part of his character in the song, in the Eddas. And so um, he just thinks he's being beat. True. And the next day, Utgard Loki reveals the tricks. Mm. Thjalfi was trying to outrace Hugi, who is actually thought, human thought. Loki was trying to out-eat fire. And Thor's contest involved trying to drink the ocean, lifting Jormungand, the world serpent, and wrestling with death. Right. Now, we should explain a couple of things here. One, the story about the drinking the ocean, uh, it's explained that that causes the tides, uh, that as Thor tries to drink the ocean, the tide recedes, and as he relieves himself afterward, the tide comes back in. Uh, now, Jormungand uh, is a serpent so large that it encircles the earth and bites its own tail. And this is significant to Thor's story because Thor is destined, according to prophecy, to fight Jormungand at Ragnarok. That's right. And then uh, after all of this, uh, Utgard Loki vanishes, mm -hmm. leaving Thor so frustrated that he goes fishing for Jormungand for, to get some kind of revenge and nearly sets off Ragnarok early by bashing the serpent on the head. Right. Now, 
I think we're running a risk here. Thor's not always the comic relief. In most of his appearances in the myths, he's the almighty Thor, the, the giant killer. Mm -hmm. His protection is what allows the gods to maintain their dominance over the giants. Yeah, and Snorri often treats Thor's power with characteristic understatement. Mm -hmm. In one story, a giant has a contract with the other gods to build a wall around Asgard. Um, and for this, he is going to receive as payment the sun, the moon, and the hand of a goddess in marriage. The problem is that the Asgardians don't like it when their women get with giants. They don't mind the men getting with the giants. It happens a lot. But the women aren't supposed to. Now, when Thor kills the giant, Snorri says, Thor then paid the giant's wages, and they were not the sun and moon. Now we what get were they? Well, <laughs> they were getting his brains bashed out. Yeah. We get a taste of that same kind of casual contempt and violence in the first film, although the plot of that film seems to be the need for Thor to grow up and learn not to behave like an overmuscled child. Mm -hmm. But honestly, in the Edda, that's kind of his charm. It is. And in this film, we get Thor as a clever hero mm -hmm. with the Hulk as the brutal child. Right. Uh, but if we're going to talk about Ragnarok at all... Do you mean the actual Ragnarok? Not the Cape Blanchett's coming and she looks pissed? Movie <laughs> uh, no, Thor's role in the mythic story of Ragnarok is actually pretty limited. Yeah. He goes into battle at Odin's side, and together they face the sons of Loki, Fenrir the wolf and Jormungand, the world-encircling serpent. But he takes nine steps away from the body with poison coursing through his veins after he's been bitten by this serpent, and then he dies. Sorry. It's very much like Beowulf. If you read Beowulf, right, he fights that serpent at the end, or the, the dragon at the end, and he, he dies having defeated it. Thor the same way. Now, this film was obviously very different, the Thor Ragnarok film. Um, it's pretty clear the filmmakers are using the name Ragnarok and a vague sense of what happens there to provide a sense of closure to the film trilogy. Maybe. I think we shouldn't ignore the various references to the story of Ragnarok in the film. Okay. But they are there. I was actually pleased to see that the filmmakers seem to have at least read the Edda and do make a few references. Or the Wikipedia uh, page. Well, possibly, yes. I mean, it's... Um, they're I shortcuts. Liked, I'm an optimist. I like to okay. think people are still reading. Uh, the fire giant Surtur being Asgard's adversary and the one fated to destroy the land, it's an important part of the Edda. Mm -hmm. uh, Hell's army rising up to fight yeah. the Asgardians is also right out of the myth. Uh, and that brief image that I love of the Hulk fighting uh, Fenrir the Wolf and grabbing him by the jaws. Yeah. That's, oh, you put it up there, haven't you? There. Uh, that one. Uh, that is a pretty clear reference as well. Vidar, the son of Odin, uh, does this to kill Fenrir in revenge for Fenrir eating his father at Ragnarok. Now, I agree. Someone involved in production is seeding in these small references. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all they are, really. They're little seeds, little yeah, references. No, Absolutely. Uh, but more broadly, the film closes out a trilogy but opens up a new set of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And thematically, that's what Ragnarok is about. The Edic version ends with Surt ending the world with fire. But it really ends. There's an epilogue. The real ending is when a handful of gods and humans creep out of their hiding places and return to a place now called Ithavutler, which appears in the place where Asgard once stood. And they together must try to make a new world. Yeah. And there are a lot of fascinating parallels, if you think about this, mm -hmm. between the Ragnarok story and the Christian book of Revelations. Right. The, the era of New Jerusalem. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'd love to talk about the significance of Thor also as a counterchrist figure and a symbol of pagan resistance during the conversion of Scandinavia. But I feel like we should, we're on the modern <laughs> stuff, so we should keep moving yeah, modern, Yeah, let's right? keep moving. Uh, okay. like, a, like a lot of medieval figures, uh, Thor ends up being shaped by each successive age's ideas about the medieval world. And as we've already seen, Thor finds his origin as a manifestation of natural phenomena like thunder and lightning. He mm -hmm. then becomes a champion of a warrior class and a defender of the people against the chaos that lies outside the ordered world. His tales, like so many in folklore, 
also served to teach humans about the psychology of being human. Yeah. Now, ultimately, folklore and mythology are about what make people people, not what makes gods gods. Right. Uh, and none of this should be surprising because it's almost inevitable that stories and their characters get shaped by whoever is doing the storytelling. Um, so the cultural baggage of each age is going to inform the way we talk about these stories. Mm -hmm. Since the Middle Ages are often very poorly understood and understudied, it's almost inevitable that medieval stories are even more susceptible than most to later cultural revision. Yeah. And that's not just a medieval problem. Mm. I mean, think about a universally known figure like Jesus as an example. You snuck him in. I've got to get him in. Anglo-Saxons made Christ into an eager champion of mankind. If you read The Dream of the Rood, you've mm -hmm. seen that. The Norse made him into a warrior chieftain. And late medieval Christians turned to the affective piety of focusing on Christ's body, suffering, and emotions. And that's without even going into the tendency to treat Christ as ethnically malleable, like the blonde, blue-eyed Christ that so many North American churches feature. Absolutely. Uh, Thor, like King Arthur or Robin Hood or Ragnar Lothbrok, mm -hmm. is transformed by his treatment in the translations and reimaginings of his story. Uh, and because interest in Vikings was growing in the wider English-speaking world in the 19th century, the Victorians kind of set the hard drive when it comes to the modern imagination about the Norse world. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, Thor is very much being depicted as a tall, blonde, idealized Scandinavian man. Uh, in some ways, he's a counterbalancing figure to the darker, bloodier Vikings of the Victorian imagination. Darker and bloodier like Ragnar Lothbrok, Like Ragnar Lothbrok, exactly. Uh, Vikings created artwork that idealized the, the Norse gods and linked them to classical mythology. So the image of Thor wearing a winged helmet is actually something that develops in the 19th century. It associates Thor with gods like Mercury or Roma. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, Thor and the other Norse gods are being depicted in classical settings with Greek or Roman-style clothing mixed with medieval armor. And the Victorians love sticking these fancy helmets on the Norse, and they also create yeah. the image of the Viking with a horned helmet, mm -hmm. which is something that is just never part of the Viking world. So the fact that Thor wears a winged helmet in the Marvel comics and Loki wears a horned helmet, well... Those, I think we can see, are echoes of 19th century additions to Norse yeah. myth. The people that were sitting down to create those characters were looking at pictures like this and saying, what does it mean to be a Viking? Right. Now, a medieval audience would mainly have recognized Thor from his association with his hammer, not from a fancy helmet. Uh, we've covered this on the podcast, mm -hmm. but the Victorians love these ahistorical ideas about Vikings. They also popularized the idea of Norsemen drinking ale from the skulls of their enemies. Uh, which comes from a mistranslation of horned helmets, uh, or, or drinking horns, rather, uh, by the 17th century translator Ulle Verne. Uh, he decides that the trees, uh, bent trees of the skull, which refers to drinking horns, means drinking out of skulls. Mm -hmm. uh, Thor, since he's the most recognizable and famous of the Norse gods, gets his image shaped by these ideas to a tremendous degree. Yeah, and they also link Thor to other mythological figures. Mm -hmm. Now, a minute ago, you created a category... That included Robin Hood and King Arthur and Thor, yeah. right? And I'd add another one. The, the Thor in the comics, with his innate nobility and unerring moral compass, is more like the shining god Baldur of the myths than mm. the thunder god. Yeah, that's true. That's an excellent point. Uh, Baldur is a perfect god. Right? He's, uh, he's the son of Odin, shining god. They call him the shining god or the white god. Uh, he's so perfect that he's often read as a Christ figure. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty much where Thor ends up in the mythology Marvel's created. Exactly. I think so. But... But you were saying something about Thor and King Arthur, and I think it's interesting. Yeah, well, it's a similar point, actually. Uh, both Thor and Arthur were rewritten in the Victorian age to fit a cleaner heroic model than their earlier tales. Uh, and on top of that, the motifs that are introduced in each figure's history in the medieval and post-medieval 
periods actually come together in our more recent iterations. Uh, let's take Mjolnir for a second. No, we can't. We can't take Mjolnir. It's too heavy. There's that inscription thing. We can't Cute. pick it up. Uh, do you have the inscription handy? The inscription. I do have it handy. Mm -hmm. Look at that. I thought you would. It reads, Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Right. With the new update, by the way, a few years ago, Jane Foster took over the role of Thor in the comics, which is why the inscription now reads, if he or she be worthy. Oh, I didn't even know. Wow. Uh, hmm. uh, so what you're saying when you say we can't pick it up is that we are not worthy. I would just say, knowing you, that we are morally compromised and therefore unlikely to be able to pick the hammer. But <clears throat> I know where you're going with this. Thor's hammer operates under the same rules as Arthur's sword Excalibur. Yes. According to Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, Merlin embeds Excalibur into a stone that bears the inscription, Whosoever pulleth out this sword of this stone is rightwise king born of all England. You were already with those, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Uh, okay, now that inscription on Mjolnir, that's an invention of Marvel Comics. That's nowhere in the mythology. Uh, as you said earlier, the prose edda tells us that what Thor needs to wield this hammer is a weightlifter belt and a pair of gloves. Uh, it's a little difficult as a weapon to use because of a flaw in its construction. Uh, it's a long story to go into, but the blacksmith who created it uh, made the handle too short so that it takes extra strength to overcome the lack of leverage. Right, but we saw in that uh, Thrymskvi, the story, that Thor's hammer can be lifted by anyone with the strength to walk away with it. Remember, Thrym picks it up and just walks away. A giant can steal the thing pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And the humor of that story comes from the lengths that Thor has to go to in order to get the hammer back. And without his weapons, he's still a, a great warrior, but he's not able to attack the giants and gain back the hammer by force. Right. He's actually a more interesting character when he has to seek his weapon than he is once he's got it back. Mm -hmm. Once he's got it back, the myths usually just end with, and then he killed everyone. Yes. Uh, so to return to the modern day and the films, uh, a lot of the action in the early going in Thor Ragnarok is about stripping away those markers of w what makes Thor recognizably Thor. Yeah, that's, that's something that's been going on throughout the entire trilogy of films, really. Mm -hmm. And it follows on the comic book in that respect. Yeah, no, the problem is that as a comic book hero, Thor suffers from what I would call the Superman dilemma. He's a god, right? or at least an omnipotent godlike being. Mm -hmm. So for a storyline to have any stakes at all, it has to either do something to reduce Thor's powers, or it has to go to insane lengths to make an enemy a credible threat. And that makes sense. Uh, the first film tells a version of the original comic story. Thor loses his hammer as part of being punished by his father and has to demonstrate his inherent heroism mm -hmm. to regain the right to wield the godly power of the hammer. And in the second film, his enemy gains a godlike power of his own through the ether. Right. Now, the ether, if you didn't bother looking it up when you saw the movie, it's a reference to classical mythology. It's actually, it's literally the air the gods breathe in the afterworld. Uh, so when the dark elf Malekith, or Bad Keith, which is kind of an odd name, uh, when he breathes that ether in, he essentially becomes a god. Yeah. And even then, the film uses this kind of dimensional portal mm -hmm. thing, very lamely, to separate Thor from his hammer in order to raise the stakes of that film. Right. And in this third film, the creators seem to have figured out that the story has to eventually be moved along more quickly, uh, or shorthanded, so that we can relate to Thor as a character. Yeah. So Thor Ragnarok pushes Thor into more of a standard heroic narrative. Cut his hair, remove his armor, take away his weapon, and he becomes a more typical heroic archetype for the modern age. The film even provides him with a reconciliation with his father and a moment of apotheosis, a confrontation with death. See, I knew you were going to end up bringing up Joseph Campbell. Of course I was. In the heroic thing. But uh, yeah, this film sets up Thor as a hero in the Campbell sense of the term, mm -hmm. uh, which means that somehow in the third film of this series, we've ended up with a story of Thor learning to be a hero. Yeah. It's interesting to wait till the third film, mm -hmm. but I think all of them do the same thing, really. 
And when he learns that some things in this film have to be destroyed in order for anything to be saved, he gains the boon of overcoming death. Right, and that's actually literal, right? I mean, the villain in this film is Hela, the goddess of death. Uh, we're trying to avoid recounting the entire plot for those of you who haven't seen it, but trust us, this movie does not bring the subtle. No. Uh, by the end, it's, it's very funny, clear. though. Yeah, yeah. It's clear that Thor is now a hero in the classical sense of the term, and that his new task is to help both Earth and Asgard as the master of two worlds. Which is exactly where the Campbellian hero should be at the end of his story. Right. I like it. But Campbell's hardly the only one to kind of read this story and play with it. Right, absolutely. No, like the creators of the mythologies that give rise to Thor, the filmmakers are making a deliberate decision to engage with a cultural moment. Late in the film, Heimdall and Thor take control of a ship full of refugees from a cataclysm, and they must now seek a new land where they can be safe. The refugees are all Asgardian, but are of different ethnicities. Thor's decision to bring the ship to Earth is a pretty clear appeal to a progressive vision for political and war refugees. Yeah. And the multicultural aspect of those images is kind of important as well. Yes. An early reaction to the film has been its apparent response to the recent visibility of right-wing white nationalist groups. Uh, John Semley's review of the film, and he titles his review, Thor Ragnarok is a hammer to the face of the alt-right. It's a great title. It makes the point that the filmmakers go out of their way mm -hmm. to refute white supremacist claims of this medieval or mythical justification for this ridiculous ideology. Right. Uh, can you put that up on Still Store, Camba? I do have it. Thank you. Uh, Semley writes, In her wanton, giddy lust for violence, Hela challenges taken-for-granted notions of Asgardian exceptionalism, implicating Odin et al. in the nasty business of extra-dimensional empire building. Indeed, Hela's plot is nothing short of spreading the Asgardian master race across the cosmos, exterminating lesser classes of life that stand in her way. Mm -hmm. The parallels to the similarly deluded endpoint of alt-right and modern white nationalists, who talk openly and with insane straight-faced pride of an all-white ethnostate while judiciously avoiding the subject of the mass genocides required to create one, is pretty much self-evident. Yeah. Well, that, that's a pretty potent message for what is a very goofy film. Yes. If you've seen it, it is a comedy, honestly. It, it's a great comedy. You wouldn't suspect that there's such a, a deep message in there. Uh, even more so when you combine all of that with the image of the Asgardian refugees. Right. The overall argument seems to be one of common humanity. The suffering created by colonial ambitions that treat one people as inherently superior or more worthy than another. Right. And that inscription on Thor's hammer takes on a whole new meaning once the idea of a wielder being worthy means something different than superior. Yeah. Thor's commitment to his duty uh, and to his people becomes an internalized worthiness. He's a greater hero as the leader of a band of refugees than he is as a lone gun champion whose worth is externalized in his weapon. Yeah, and that lesson is brought home by one of the final images of the film. Mm -hmm. Surrounded by all of his friends and his followers, Thor sits on the new throne of Asgard. It's exactly the position and the role that he rejected at the end of the Dark World because of the moral compromises that he feared that being a leader like that would require of him. Mm -hmm. Remember, he said, I'd rather be a good man than a great king. Right. And, and Thank now. You. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's so easy. Uh, so easy. I got nothing for badass. Uh, <laughs> now, his belief in moral right at this point leads him to the throne, right? and taking his place as a king is a result of his commitment to doing right. Yeah. Not a compromise of his morals, but a fulfillment of his duty. To be a good man in Ragnarok requires that Thor become a great king. And so he embraces his fate. How very Germanic. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's good. And it gives a good message to us that this is an ideal that we all have to strive for. Right. Um, that's what good heroes represent for us. Right. Um, and that's probably a good place for us to stop. 
because we'd like to hear mm -hmm. what you guys think about the mythical Thor and the Marvel Thor or the movie Thor. And if you guys have any questions, we're going to do our best to try to come up with some answers that make sense for you. Right, we can't promise there'll be accurate answers, but we'll try. Yeah. All right. So, do you have any questions for us? Yes, sir. So, what happened? What do you guys think happened to um, Thor's father at the end of um, Thor: Dark World? Uh, oh, so when he's exiled. Uh, well, we shouldn't spoil. Yeah, that's kind of addressed in the new film. So you just got to see the new film. film. Yes. Um, but we can also say that uh, mythologically, Odin was well known for going on these walkabouts. Right, that frequently his legends involve him taking on a form and walking among mankind, yeah. where he usually causes trouble. Odin is not a benevolent all-father. Yeah. Uh, you want to look for a good king, you look to Baldur or yeah. Thor. But I think one of the cool things about Odin in that position, think about the first function, leaders, rulers, he believes he's so much better than everyone else, representing the nobility and the aristocracy, that he doesn't actually care what you think about him and right. what he's doing. Right. He's not trying to impress you. He'll right. do with you what he wants, because that's what he's allowed to do. But yeah, so him sort of wandering off without explanation is actually pretty much in keeping with the myths. Yeah. Yeah, you. Uh, mentioned, sorry, you mentioned Mjolnir as a phallic symbol. Mm -hmm. Is there anything relating that to the uh, short hill? Ha! <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, a, a short hilt, but a big and broad head. Uh, yeah, no. It's, it's uh, the endless, I mean, it's clearly meant, you're supposed to have a great deal of fun with this. Uh, and we can, we won't, but we could cite um, uh, sagas that have long poems about how gifted or not gifted a given man is, uh, and the length of his sword or the length of his hammer. So yes, uh, there's absolutely, there's no way to not read into the short shaft. This is what they call it. That's right. That's right. Some good scholarly content. That's right. You had a question over there in the. Yeah. Uh, Balder, like, mm -hmm. you mentioned him fairly briefly, but what's his a dynamic with Thor? With uh, the well, they're brothers. They are brothers, uh, yeah. Half brothers, I suppose. Uh, and Balder is the perfect god. Right? He's usually called the shining god or the white god. Um, he is the figure that essentially corresponds to Christ in Norse mythology. Um, his death in the stories comes before the rest of the gods. He actually dies because of a plot by Loki. Uh, and so his death br sort of brings about the age of Ragnarok. That once he's dead, we know we're heading toward Ragnarok. Um, and it's one of those, it's, a, it's an odd story, I'll try to be brief about it, but in um, Norse myth, Baldur is so beloved that no one will harm him. That includes inanimate objects. Every one and everything in the world swears an oath not to hurt Baldur. And this is because his mother has gone around to everything, right. inanimate and animate objects, and said, hey, will you promise not to hurt my boy? And everyone, everyone says yes, but mm -hmm. there's one thing, as she's down by an oak tree, and she looks up, and in the oak tree, she sees some mistletoe, and she's like, ah, it's mistletoe. What's going to happen? I'm not going to climb up there. So she doesn't get the oath from mistletoe, but she gets it from everything else in the mm -hmm. whole world. Uh, but, of course, Loki, who can't stand the idea of a perfect shining god, um, finds out about the mistletoe and goes and makes a dart from it. Uh, and then goes to the hall that night, where all the other gods are engaged in their usual evening activity of throwing things at Baldur. Because they live in a world where everything has sworn an oath not to harm him. And so it's great fun. You just bounce axes and spears and things off of him all night long. And Balder, being the guy, is, oh, guys, come on. And everybody's having a great time. And the only god who will not participate is Hod, Balder's brother, because Hod is blind. Uh, and so Loki sort of sidles up to him and says, why aren't you participating? 
And Hulk says, well, I, I can't see, and so I'm afraid that I'll harm somebody. Right? Boulder can't be hurt, but the rest of these people can. Well, Loki says, well, I'll help you. Gives him a dart made from the mistletoe, points him at Boulder, and says, there he is, right in front of you. Now throw. And Loki hoofs it at him. Uh, and Hod throws his dart, and it pierces Balder, and he falls down dead. Uh, and so it's it's actually an innocent who ends up killing Balder because he's manipulated by yeah. Loki. But Balder dies, and what's really cool in the connection with the Christianity and, and Book of Revelations is that after Ragnarok, after everything's done, one of the things is that Balder escapes from hell, right. and he is he emerges as this new leader for the for the Asgardians who survive that horrible battle. And the other cool thing about the, the whole Ragnarok thing is it really speaks to the horrors of war. Mm -hmm. And this is a warlike culture. These are, these are tribal individuals in their earliest history fighting each other for survival. This story speaks to the, the, the kind of chaos and the hurt that comes with a lifestyle like It doesn't that. shy away from the idea that, you know, the winners and the losers are both going to be destroyed in a war. Yeah. It's not, you know, you don't have the victors and then there's a big celebration for the victors. It's everybody dies. Everyone suffers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the serpent in Ragnarok more part of like Norse mythology instead of the uh, Marvel? Because he wasn't in the movie, right? Right. He there's, wasn't. There's a there's a, a kind of reference in this sort of dragon serpent thing that he has to fight at the beginning of the movie. Um, oh yeah. Right. Sert has this oh, sort of yeah. pet dragon serpent thing that chases him through the portal. Oh okay. Uh, or part of it chases him through the portal. Um, <laughs> so that's the only reference I could find, uh, but they don't they don't do a lot with Jormungand, where they have Fenrir as a specific character mm -hmm. in the third movie. Jormungand, either they're saving him for a future film, or they just decide... But imagine that notion of a, a giant serpent encircling the world that we live on. That's a little hard to take, right? Do you believe yeah. that? <laughs> well, but it's Asgard, right? They've got the yeah. big plate. Um, and, you know, they do have... I mean, what I did like is that they did make that connection between Hela and Fenrir. Right, that they are brother and sister, according to Norse mythology. In Marvel Comics, Hel is a sister of Thor and Loki, but in the comics, in the in the mythology, she and Fenrir are both children of Loki, and so they're siblings. And so when she sees Fenrir, and she's sort of all excited to see him again, and then uses him as a steed for the rest of the film, it's actually a nice little sort of hark back to the mm -hmm. mythology. Yeah. Any comment on the de depiction of Valkyrie? Um, I mean, aside from the fact that it's a little odd to have them in the story at all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, you know, the comics are whatever they are. You can do whatever you want with them. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, no, I, the, one thing I think she she represents a displaced person, right? Sure. Um, so that that's a nice way of exploring how a person who has has suffered at the hands of colonialism or the acts mm. of colonialism uh, deals with the horrors of that after the fact because she participated in it, right? Um, and, and suffers from the, the egos and the, the, the horrors that come out of it. Right. I mean, participated in it, but also, you know, you do see that scene where it's very clear that Odin sent them all into a meat grinder yeah. uh, to gain time for the rest of Asgard. And that she was the lone survivor and witness to the consequences of Odin's yeah. sort of high-handedness toward his followers. So if you uh, think exactly of these... what what Thor criticized Odin for in the second film, right? That you're yeah. too eager to send your people to their deaths. And if you think about these films as exploring that relationship between uh, authority and regular people that kind of have to do the things that mm -hmm. authority wants you to do, um, th that is really exploring those, those ideas yeah. in some interesting ways. Again, as very subtly as it can in a comedy film that's supposed to not really make you think too much, but <laughs> right, it's there. <laughs> Do you have a question? One more question? Um, so, um, why would um, Loki um, disguise himself as um, 
as Odin, mm-hmm. when he um when he takes the throne at the end of the second movie, mm-hmm. oh. because then he's king. That's right, yeah. and it's fun. That's what Loki's about. Right. He's the god of mischief. But then he gets thrown back into um, his cell in Asgard at, right. the, at the beginning of the third. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's about, you know, he doesn't do things necessarily because they're a great plan. Yeah. He does them because he's a seller of chaos. Right? He's a trickster god. This is the best trick he's got right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at, at again comparative mythology, if you look through most world religions, there is a trickster figure mm-hmm. that does crazy stuff. Loki is kind of the equivalent of something like Anansi in African tradition mm-hmm. or Coyote in Native American tradition. Right? These figures who exist only to be chaotic, and sometimes that means they screw themselves over because you know that makes for a better story. Yeah. Uh, that half of Anansi stories are stories where Anansi ends up right, the original story of getting caught in uh, a, a mannequin made of tar is an Anansi story, that he actually ends up suffocating to death, fighting this thing. Uh, but that's what the trickster does, right? He plays these games. Yeah. All right, one more. Oh, yep. Uh, in the Norse legends or myths, I guess, would you say that they also showcase like a, um, a love-hate relationship between Thor and Loki? Because they do work together at mm-hmm. times, but then yes, there's do. also that distrust between the yeah. two of them where mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the both the comic books, not that I've read a lot of those, but the, and the films, do a nice job with that relationship. Because yes, sometimes they work together really well, and sometimes when they're working together, Thor finds out that Loki set up this whole stupid thing to make him look foolish. Um, but sometimes they work together, just so you saw with the, the Thrumir thing. Loki is dressed as a or becomes a woman in order to help Thor get his hammer back. Right. So it, they, they they definitely work together, but at, at cross purposes quite frequently. And he actually has a much he's much more integrated into the Norse pantheon than he is in the comic books. Uh, he's actually there's a, a a triad who travel together quite a lot, and it's Loki, Odin, and Hanir is one of the minor gods. But the three of them go off on hunting trips uh, pretty routinely, and they're terrible hunters. They often end up like half starving in the woods because they can't find anything to eat. But the, the, but this is sort of one of Odin's chosen companions, is to wander around with Loki, who's actually who's not his son in the, in the myths. He's from a different family. Uh, but there, but that relationship, right? Loki's a great guy to travel with. He's always got a story. He's always got a joke. Right? Sometimes the joke's going to be on you, but that's the price of being entertained. That's right. Yeah. Any others? Well, uh, hang on. We do have one more. One more. Yep. Go. Yeah. The, the memories, the childhood memories that they talk about. Mm-hmm. Are any of those memories true to the mythology, or did they just throw that in there because here this remember. sounds funny? Yeah. Um, some well, one thing that is that is a reference uh, when they're doing at the beginning of the third movie, they show these actors reenacting the death of Loki, uh, which is fantastic. I won't spoil that because you haven't seen it yet, but it's it's worth it. Uh, but one of the things that they remember at that moment is remember that time that I turned you into a frog. Yes. And he says, that was a funny joke! Um, that's actually a reference to the comic books. That yeah. happened in the comic yeah, books back in the 1970s. No, I think it was uh, in the 90s. Was it in the 90s? 2000s? This is uh, the expert. Uh, Here's our comic book expert. late 80s. Is it? We're in there. We're in the range. Yeah, that's uh, cool. So we deal in thousands of years, so we're Right, both. right, right. Uh, we got every other day. Um, but yeah, so, so there are a couple of those things that are references to the comic books, less than to the actual mythology. Yeah, uh, but I really want like uh, Muppet Babies with Norse gods. It just sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Because he's a good warrior. Become this figure of morality. Might be a, I mean, he it's kills, a, right? What's that? Does he predominantly kill giants? And yeah, he does. Sympathy for giants. Um, he does. I mean, but at the same time, even in the mythology, he never really has a problem with things like violating a truce. Um, that you know, the, when he kills the giant who was supposed to build the wall and gain a goddess, the giant has upheld his end of the bargain. Uh, it's just the gods didn't expect him to be able to. Yeah. And so, so now you, that it turns out they're going to have to pay up, they'd rather not. Uh, and so they've got their wall built, then they sick Thor on him, he kills the giant, they keep the wall. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, Thor is, is, he's simple in the, I don't mean um, foolish, I mean simple in the sense that he's, he does, he's an uncomplicated thinker in the, yeah. in the myths. And, and so if he's told, think, kill that giant, well, that's what I do, that's why I have this hammer, so I'm going to go kill the giant. Think about the Dumezel thing, he, he's a second function, he's right. a warrior. And he's got a very particular job. He's not really supposed to think or even represent morality in any way. It's the modern era that starts to turn him into that. Right. Because we need a hero that represents something good to us. And Thor is a bit too, in, in just to use that word, simple uh, in, the, in the mythology. Yeah. I think straightforward is similar. Hey, yeah. 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 we should have had him that's, up here. See, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Straightforward. straightforward is a, a good linear word. thinker. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you, you talked about how Thor was—he became like this. Although he wasn't the chief god, he became like this um, insanely popular yeah, god among the popular. Vikings. Do you think that's due to the fact that you know um, the Vikings? You know, whether you were like, what, no matter what class you were, is central to the culture. Was this idea of of the warrior, like absolutely. The, you know, the, the raining and the children, that was central part of Viking culture. Yeah, and I don't think we, we didn't talk about it here, but I, I, as I was preparing this, I was thinking Thor really represents very nicely the fifth century migration period, uh, where mm -hmm. that's where you're, you're seeing the fall of the Roman Empire. You have tribes moving all over, the Huns are in, you got people bouncing all over the place, and the kind of violence that you see and the instability of that world. Thor represents what's happening at that moment. And I think these myths that are translated and are transferred through time into the 13th century when they're finally written down, mm -hmm. I think they find their origin at this moment when the cultures are really honing themselves as we need guys like this. They represent what we want or what we need to survive. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's, of course, as you said, that's what the Vikings are all about, too. And again, he has those other functions that, that help him get more popular. Fertility. Um, hallowing things. So if you, you want to have a nice house, make it safe, you want a crop to grow, you ask Thor. So he's everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's Thor. So I think that, that speaks yeah. to it. Yeah. He's the god you invite to your wedding. He's the god you invite into your home. I mean, he's part of all these things. Mm -hmm. Where Odin is always a little bit in the remove because you don't really trust him. Yeah. Do you feel that adding in the storyline in Thor Ragnarok regarding the refugee um, situation. Do you feel that that's actually well done and it fits like kind of authorism? Do you feel it's almost kind of like ham-fisted political propaganda that they're kind of doing it to please a certain audience? I think it does actually. Um, it's uh, the the actual story of Ragnarok, right? This is this is coda. It ends with Surtur destroying everything. Right? It says the world is bathed in fire, and that's the end. But then there's this coda. There's this afterward when a few humans and a few gods come forward. Right? The sons of Odin have survived the battle. The sons of Thor. Uh, when hell threw open the gates of hell and let everybody out, Baldur snuck out. And so he actually makes it out of hell. And so even though he's dead in the first world, he's actually resurrected in the second world. And his brother Hod also returns from the dead because he was actually killed in revenge for the death of his brother. 
Uh, so those six gods and then a handful of humans who hid now come forward and have to start rebuilding the world. So it actually, the idea of a refugee group made up of Asgardians and humans coming back afterward or surviving um, and then needing to find a new home actually fits directly into the myths. Yeah, fits very nicely. I noticed that a lot of times with movies like this, sometimes you do have them kind of try to slip in things that try sure. to give a certain audience, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you have people banning Wonder Woman because, you know, oh, it's not a white man or whatever. It's Sure, well, sure. Right, right. No, but the, yeah, so this is actually, this is a case where they, they looked at the mythology, or, or maybe they did, maybe they came upon a happy accident. Right. Uh, but either way, it actually ends up fitting much more nicely, actually, than a lot of their other storylines have done. And one of the things we're trying to, to suggest in this, in this short talk is, is to say that if you look at Thor and his role throughout time as the defender of the people, who is balancing this role of defender of mm-hmm. common people with this role of authority and, and all, He's not quite regal. He's not quite uh, mm-hmm. uh, the sovereign yet, but he goes back and forth in between them. And this story, uh, this this story really picks up on that nicely. I think mm-hmm. um, it, it emphasizes his role with all those people that you know. We're watching it and thinking, aren't these people that live in Asgard supposed to be gods? Like, why are they so wimpy? Right. Like, they're 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 really just refugees, and they're there to be refugees and be weak so that he can protect them. They right, are the to fit that people. narrative. So I think that works. That works really nicely. Now that said. One of the things we also try to suggest in this is that every moment in history where you have stories are speaking to that moment in history and what's going on. So the fact that there are parallels between what's going on in our world, um, between uh, stuff with refugees and race relations and all that kind of stuff, the fact that that's in the film is appropriate because those are questions that we're supposed to ask and good storytellers ask us to ask good questions, right? Um, the, the best ones don't tell us the answers and beat us over the head with them, um, but, you know, it's Hollywood, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's how it works. Uh, join me in thanking our speakers for coming today. Thank you.